0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, we're taking a hard look at Israel's military elite and its role in the peace process. Patrick Tyler has spent a combined 26 years reporting for The New York Times and The Washington Post. He's covered the U.S. State Department, the Pentagon, the intelligence community, and the Middle East. It's the latter, the Middle East, that he focuses on in his new book, Fortress Israel. In the book, Tyler offers a fascinating account of the Israeli military establishment, of its victories, defeats, mistakes, and its cover-ups. And he makes the argument that beginning with David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Dayan in the 1950s, Israel's leaders have relied on a mindset that has made peace in the region all but impossible. Well, today, Patrick Tyler joins us from Washington, D.C. to talk about his new book. Patrick Tyler, welcome to Vox Tablet.
1: Thanks very much, Sarah. Glad to be here.
0: First of all, of course, congratulations on this book. It's clear that you did a startling amount of research and that you really made it quite a page-turner, which is no small feat given that it clocks in at about 500 pages. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) In the book, In Fortress Israel, you argue that the aggressiveness of the military elite in Israel stands basically in the way of peace. And central to that argument is the idea of the quote-unquote Sabra Code, that is a kind of mentality... Uh, that pervades the Israeli consciousness. Tell us what this code is and how did it develop?
1: What you're getting at here is the pioneer mentality of Israel that was uh, extant at the time of statehood uh, following uh, the 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 war for independence in 1948. And the Sabras were the core of the Israeli military that startled the world by defeating the Arab armies and, and establishing the state. And I think there was a crucial lesson from that first establishing war of independence, and that was war works. War gets results. War got a lot more results than diplomacy had for the previous 20 years. And so this Sabra generation, meaning the native-born pioneer uh, sons and daughters who were in that first army, uh, had a very strong martial orientation and this original martial impulse – is something that carries down till today. And it's at the core of a military establishment that is the most influential institution in the state of Israel.
0: Now, you set forth in the book that, in fact, this mindset, as you say, was paramount since Israel's very establishment some 60-odd years ago. And you illustrate that point with the story of the Kibya raid in 1953, about five years after Israel was first formed. Tell us briefly what happened there.
1: The Kibya raid was a crucial event because it came at a time of introspection by David Ben-Gurion over what the course, what the direction of the state was going to be. Was it going to be more militarized or was it going to be more engaging of the Arab world as the United States and the Western world wanted Israel to be? The Kibya raid resulted because there was some uh, Arab violence against the uh, Jewish state I think in this case a hand grenade was thrown into a, a car in one of the settlements near Tel Aviv and just at that moment David Ben-Gurion was in the desert reflecting on these big issues of of the future of the state, and he realized uh, that retaliation here—a strong retaliation—was the best was the best course, was the best reaction, because the Arabs were never going to understand that Israel was there to stay until they were essentially defeated in serial war. And so he loosed this small commando unit, which happened to be uh, headed at the time by a very young Ariel Sharon. And that unit took a truckload of explosives into the Jordan Valley to the village of uh, Kibia and set uh, explosives in every house, blew up 45 houses, killed dozens of people, fought off the Jordanian army and came back home with a, a uh, an enormous impact. On the Arab side of the border and and an international outcry that a massacre had occurred. What was astounding also at that moment is Ben-Gurion decided to lie uh, that Israel was responsible for that raid and that the military had had anything to do with it. He thought it was better to suggest that civilians had taken matters into their own hands and to protect the army and this new secret commando weapon he had... Uh, f- from any kind of reprisals from the international community, from UN sanctions or any kind of uh, punishment for Israel's act.
0: And you also make the point, of course, that Ben-Gurion basically kept the prime minister at that time, Moshe Shared, in the dark about the whole thing so that in some ways the military started or was was already well on its way of this pattern of just kind of going rogue and doing its own thing.
1: Yeah, it's a crucial it's a crucial struggle from the 1950s. And I, I found, Sarah, that even many Israelis don't fully understand their own history about the debates that occurred uh, behind the walls of secrecy in the 1950s over this. Moshe Sherat, who was Israel's second prime minister, uh, spoke Arabic, had grown up uh, part of his uh, youth in, a, in an Arab village. Uh, his father was an educator. His mother was an educator. He really understood the Arabs. Uh, he, he believed that Israel's only real course was the constant strategic pursuit of peace and engagement and integration into the region. Uh, Ben-Gurion came to uh, oppose that view entirely and believed that the, uh, the only future for Israel was uh, a long-term and serial warfare that would defeat any Arab pretension that it could push Israel into the sea or defeat it. And that great titanic struggle uh, was the backdrop For the politics of the time and and Ben-Gurion's constant attempt along with his acolytes like Moshe Dayan and Shimon Peres to undermine Sherat's premiership to keep him in the dark and to make him fail. And his political career was basically destroyed in those years as Ben-Gurion sought to impose a hard martial outlook uh, for a military society.
0: In the book, in fact, you compare Israel with this kind of martial attitude to Sparta. And I wonder, for people who have forgotten their Greek history, uh, tell us
1: briefly what you mean. Well, what I mean is that the perception of Israel is a difficult matter over uh, the decades because we have perceived it as Americans and as Westerners, as the embattled Athens, the small and vulnerable uh, democracy that – reflects our principles and our democratic uh, institutions and is worthy of our uh, support to protect against overwhelming odds in the region. And to to some extent, that is absolutely true. The Arabs attacked. Uh, The Arabs had a chance to form their state in 1947 and rejected it. But uh, what history has revealed – as the layers of classification and the archives have become um, available over the last twenty years is that in that first decade of statehood, uh, Ben-Gurion was more not as interested in building Athens as he was in building a warrior society, a militarized society, where the army essentially was the country and still is the country today. I mean, once uh, uh, Israelis enter the military system, uh, they don't really leave it. It becomes part of their identity. And every Israeli, with few exceptions, is required to go into the military after high school for three long years. Years of service. And you never really leave it because you're then part of the reserve force of the Israeli military until you're 49 years old. So you, your wife, and your children, everyone in your extended family is a part of this military enterprise. Uh, that's a profound impact on a society. And what the, the big collision... In Israeli society is between that overarching influence of the military establishment and any competing institution, the institutions of diplomacy, negotiation and compromise, which have been undermined over time because the military establishment is so uh, uh, powerful and and, uh, smothering in its uh, control over the society. Sparta is about being a warrior. And the warrior class looks at its military options and tends to look at diplomacy and negotiation as an act of appeasement, as an act of surrender. And the military caste, therefore, is preeminent.
0: If everybody's in the military, then who actually are the diplomatic voices? Where are they coming from?
1: Well, there is a foreign ministry. There are some institutions uh, that are charged with diplomacy. In, in Israel, they have never been very strong in all of the debates and the political contests uh, with the military establishment. The foreign ministry, arguably, is the center of diplomatic institutionalism uh, in Israel. But it's always been weak. Moshe Sherat, the second prime minister, was a lifelong diplomat. He came out of that uh, institutional structure and he failed. Ben-Gurion set out to destroy his political career and he succeeded. And everyone in Israel knows that the fate of Sherat has, has come down through the decades as the fate of anyone who attempts to overturn the military's control over the policy agenda in Israel. Uh, So there are diplomats today. You you still have people who enter the foreign ministry today who were idealistic about uh, developing diplomatic options for the state. You find them in the Mossad. You know, the Mossad, even though people look at it as kind of the CIA of Israel, it has an an entire diplomatic division within it because so many of uh, Israel's diplomatic relations are conducted in secret. And so you have lots of people engaged in diplomatic activity, but they don't have, uh, they don't hold a candle to the influence of the military, and they've never been able to seize the policy initiative on the grand strategy of the country. It took someone like Yitzhak Rabin, after all, who came from the military establishment, who was the first prime minister since uh, Sharat to cross the Rubicon and say, we have to extend our hands and negotiate with the Arabs.
0: But, of course, he paid dearly with his life for... uh for that point of view. And I wonder, how can there be peace when large swaths of the public on both sides have opposed the sort of concessions that would be necessary, and also militants on both sides are determined to disrupt any peace process?
1: Well, it takes time. I don't know if you remember this, but Yitzhak Rabin used to say when he was engaged in the Oslo peace process with Yasser Arafat and, and suicide bombers uh, started Infiltrating Israel and, and causing terrible violence and and mayhem and he he said, "We will make peace as if there is no terrorism, and we will fight terrorism as if there is no peace process. Uh, that is the attitude that is essential to get peace in the Holy Land. There is a strong, strong uh, hard line reaction to every act of violence and terrorism. But it takes a long program of diplomacy and enormous leadership from a prime minister to overcome uh, that opposition uh, to peace process. And, you know, it's it's easy to say you can't see it on the horizon today. Uh, But Rabin, remember, startled the world. I mean, the Intifada of 1987, when it took off and you had Arabs uh, Palestinian Arabs in the street burning tires and and going on for months and months of protest against the occupation. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin finally understood that there was no military solution to dealing with the nationalistic aspirations of the Arabs who represent the intimate enemy of the Israelis.
0: Rabin underwent this uh, evolution from being a military man to actually seeing that one has to uh, compromise and that is probably the a better option perhaps to reaching peace. And there have been other military leaders in Israel who have come to see the necessity for diplomacy and negotiation, Shimon Peres among them, Ezra Weitzman. But then you have people like Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the prime minister now, who doesn't seem to embrace that idea. He seems to take a much more uh, martial uh, point of view. And I wonder why do you think some people who have had military training in Israel have undergone that kind of evolution and some haven't?
1: Oh, I think you're now asking a question of what makes a statesman. And the answer for Rabin was as a military man who had, after he had built the army that won the Six Day War, had gone off and pursued a diplomatic career and, and in the United States and then come back and served as uh, prime minister, not very successfully the first time. But he had learned all of those lessons of statesmanship. And when the time came and Israel had played out all of the elements of war, all of the strategies of war through the 70s. The Yom Kippur War, which devastated Israeli society. The 1982 War in Lebanon, which further devastated Israeli society, caused so much angst and questioning about, will we never be able to put down the sword? Rabin looked at the Intifada, looked at the at the uprising of the Palestinians in 1987, 1988, and said, there is no military solution to this. We have to try diplomacy. He wasn't very good at it initially. He stumbled because he had no training for how to engage the intimate enemy. Uh, and, And that made him... Uh, a a different kind of political figure than a much younger Benjamin Netanyahu, who today hails from a tradition that is so hidebound on the right that it's difficult, much more difficult for him to break out of it. His uh, father, uh, who died recently, was the chief of staff to Vladimir Jabotinsky, who invented the right-wing ideology of the Zionist uh, movement. His father and and, uh, Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir all had the same similar outlook. I don't know if you remember this, but in 1992, when Yitzhak Shamir was running against Rabin, he he told his Stern gang followers, uh, listen, we need this truth today, the truth of the power of war. Or at least we need to accept that war is inescapable, because without it, the life of the individual has no purpose And the nation has no chance of survival. It is an ideology that's vested in war. And I think Benjamin Netanyahu is comfortable within those walls. And if he makes a deal for peace, it will be one that tries to circumscribe the Palestinian existence and give them the minimal amount and carry on an extremely uh, cold and dominating relationship, uh, kind of like the Soviet Union and Finland.
0: Of course, though, we have the benefit of hindsight when we're thinking about military leaders in the moment when they're trying to decide what they're going to do or military leaders who are now in political positions, let's say, and they have to negotiate with the other side, they're not always negotiating with people who are acting in good faith.
1: Well, oh, of course, of course. I, listen, I think it has to be said. I mean m- my book is, is, is about Israeli political culture. It is not about Arab uh, political culture. The Arabs have their own – tragedies and failures uh, in democratic process and in bringing a strong National uh, uh, determination for peace uh, with Israel you, you have Arab leaders over the decades who have been extremely churlish and insensitive to the uh, or lacking empathy for the annihilation and Holocaust that the uh, Jewish people suffered in, uh, in World War II and an ex- extreme hostility toward the concept of Jewish nationhood and they have to answer for that but this this book is about Israeli military. Culture and how it has constrained a society from engaging those processes that are much more highly developed in our Western societies Uh, because uh, we had our own debates over the path of of our constitutional democracies. Uh, Israel didn't have those debates uh, in the open, it had them in secret in the first decade of statehood, and Ben Gurion so dominated them that he put the country on a course which it is still. On And you have to say that Israel today is still in the thrall of its original martial impulse. And that's a problem that Western societies are going to have to deal with because we are now engaged in a great uh, contest over whether there's going to be a war with Iran. And it it is very relevant today.
0: You end the book just before Netanyahu's current term as prime minister – But looking at what's happening today, Netanyahu and Ehud Barak, who is now the Minister of Defense, they definitely seem like they are. They're sort of chomping at the bit to go to war with Iran, yet the top brass of the Israeli military doesn't necessarily seem to feel the same way. Where does the Sabra Code stand now?
1: Conflicted. Uh, There's a great crack in the force, uh, as it were. Um, You have a a prime minister and a defense minister who are the very cream of the military uh, elite, and yet they are at, at odds. Uh, with the consensus within the military and the intelligence establishment uh, that a war with Iran now is a big mistake, a terrible mistake that might trigger a regional war, might uh, send the uh, global economy over the cliff again, this time much to a much deeper chasm. And so there is a great deal of feeling that the Prime Minister and the Defense Minister are acting out some personal ambition, some personal uh, vision of Leadership. Uh, I think uh, if you go to Bibi Netanyahu's office today, you'll find the, uh, lots of portraiture of Winston Churchill, and I think uh, he has uh, adopted this uh, uh, Western icon of military assuredness and conservatism to convey the message that there won't be any 1938s on his watch, there won't be any appeasing the enemy uh and that he can make tough decisions ehud barak has always looked at himself uh as the next ben gurion uh he also has an enormous enormous sense of self assurance as the most decorated uh, military man in the country with the clearest uh, and strongest strategic uh, vision both of them are grappling with a also a problem that has never really confronted the Jewish state as terribly as the prospect of a a technologically competent power, an enemy that might have nuclear weapons someday able to be strapped onto a ballistic missile that could be fired uh, at the Jewish state. And this has driven them to enormous lengths of agitation and focus on the United States as the, as the great power that ought to lead the battle against Iran and, and which is giving the Obama administration such fits of, in trying to uh, calm the situation down.
0: Now, you must have done an astounding amount of research for this book. And I wonder if you had a general sense of your thesis before you began writing and if anything surprised you along the way.
1: I certainly didn't have a general sense of my thesis when I started out beyond this. uh, This book emerged from my reporting on an earlier book, which is about the American presidents who dealt with the Middle East going back to Eisenhower. And I became fascinated by uh, the military culture there and how... The military elite look out at the world from Israel, and it 's a small group of people, and therefore it 's possible to create a portrait of them and, and their their collaboration, their rivalries over time, and also what their thinking means for the west and that 's what emerged these uh, this thesis, I think because any reasonable researcher. After going through this level of research and interviewing and looking at the opened archives and diaries and everything, comes to the conclusion that Israel is still struggling with this martial impulse that was the foundation of statehood and the backbone of the army uh, that essentially is the country today. Uh, And that's the most important lesson to take from it because we have to help uh, the Israelis and we have to help our own country because their politics reflects into our politics in Congress and the executive branch and in the media. We have to help them get back to that strategic consensus that Rabin imposed on the military establishment, that peace Is the strategic goal, not war, and that that's very, very tough. You remember uh, President Eisenhower struggled with what he called the military industrial complex. Uh, Well, the Israelis have that in spades. It's a very, very difficult cultural enterprise to take on.
0: Patrick Tyler, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Enjoyed it.
0: Patrick Tyler is the author of Fortress Israel, the inside story of the military elite who run the country and why they can't make peace. It's out now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. If you liked our conversation today, well, why don't you tell everybody about it? You can send them a link to our podcast. And while you're doing that, encourage them to subscribe to Vox Tablet on iTunes or listen through Stitcher or any other podcast browser. That way they can be sure not to miss a single episode. We have a lot of great stuff coming up. Our podcast today was produced by Marit Har. Vox Tablet's executive producer is Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thank you so much for joining us.